Hi, I'm Barry Zwaristin, author of Which Way Is Your Warrior Facing? An Operational Manual for Current Serving and Veterans Transitioning into Civilian Life. This is part two of the podcast of my book to support those of you that listen better than you read. Today, I want to start off with the chapter, If You Are Stuck, Do a Handstand. Now, what I mean here is that it's not so much about physically doing the handstand, but what it means is that I'd like you to think about learning to change your mindset, learning to shift your perspective. Remember that as you think, so you will be. If you are stuck, then essentially you have two choices. The one is go victim and remain where you are or fully commit to do whatever it takes to move forwards. It's like being at the 64 kilometer mark of an ultra marathon and every part of you is screaming to find a way to drop out. The thing is that life is not going to come running up to you with a hug and a kiss and a bucket load of understanding. In life, if you choose not to dust off and get up, nobody can help you. So begin with the correct attitude, even if that is a recognition that you are stuck and that you cannot shift your mindset or situation. Be willing to ask for help. So now you are willing to consider shifting your attitude and be open to considering that you may be as much a part of the problem as you are also a part of the solution. Are you on the stage living the story and believing you are one of those characters or can you climb down even if only for a brief moment and sit in the audience and watch the show. Changing the place you view and experience things from can be as powerful as doing a handstand on the edge of a creek as I did many, many years ago. Somehow, things can change when you get back on your feet. And yes, there is always a risk. As you say, no pain, no gain. How can you move forward if you are not willing to address, feel, understand and heal those wounds grief, pain, anger, or other claymores that are locked away behind closed doors. Everything lives in your body. So when your body whispers to you, listen to me, hear my grief, feel my sadness, understand my loss, care for my pain. If you abandon the wisdom of your body, how can you expect others to do for you what you are avoiding doing? It's not easy feeling, but see it as energy held and encapsulated from a long time ago. It cannot kill you. It can hurt, but slowly moving through the tunnel of your past and if necessary, with appropriate help and guidance, will eventually take you back into the light. To you veterans out there or those who are currently serving, it's simple. No pull through results in a stoppage. Are you willing to strip and clean your moving parts or are you choosing to run into a stoppage? There are many out there who are waiting to run with you, but there are very few, if any, out there who will drag you over the 84 kilometers while you choose to sit by the side of a road. The healing process is not simply a fluffy crystal laying didgeridoo massaging chanting session where you just lie back and everyone does the work for you. Be great if we could experience change while remaining passive on the massage table. I often see this in the drumming circles I have run over the years, where there are men and women in their core and their power that hit the drum, and then there are those fluffy men sensitively stroking the drum skin. Whether you are a veteran or a civilian, a man or a woman, ask yourself the following questions. Is my man in charge of my boy or is my boy in charge of my man? For you women out there, if you've connected with a man who is soft, constantly in his emotional body, needy and reliant on you to organize his world, welcome to the boy. But then again, if your girl is on top of your woman, well, five-year-old boys and girls are not really ready for the wonderful work of relationships or even moving forward responsibly into the world as self-sufficient adults. The next question for men is that, is your masculine on top of your feminine or the other way around? Remember, we need both as much as you women need your feminine on top of your masculine. At times, we will draw on one or the other or both together. 
but think about where you are in this balance. We all have doors to unlock and open rooms to clearly to clear dusty dark rooms with shapes lurking, snarling or sobbing in the corners through lifetimes of neglect. Start to pay attention to yourself, your sleeping, your eating, exercise and drinking. Be honest with yourself. Avoidance is a ticket to a movie you would not be willing to pay to see. Okay, I'd like to move on to an introduction to my first book. You know, I sat down endless times to write my first book, Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing? And time after time, I've given up because it was simply easier for me to just keep working with veterans than to write. Around 2012, I began to make contact with a number of Rhodesian military groups on Facebook, since I am myself a veteran of the Rhodesian military. It soon became apparent that these veterans and their families had a real need to support. Through Skype, email and from contributing articles and checklists to the various groups, I was able to support a number of soldiers and their partners around the world. Time restrictions soon made it clear, however, that it was not going to be possible to support more than a very limited number of people. From this was born the vision of writing this book so that as wide a range of veterans and their families, not just from the Rhodesian Bush War, could benefit from the insights, understandings and strategies that I have used over the years. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Rhodesian Bush War, the war began around 1964 and ended in 1979, after which the country transitioned to a new black majority government under Zimbabwe Rhodesia, and in 1980, the country was named Zimbabwe under Prime Minister Robert Mugabe. Why the title of my first book, Which Way Is Your Claim or Facing? An Operational Manual for Veterans Transitioning to Civilian Life. What came to me was that, so often in times of transition from military to civilian life, or with the impact of trauma, much of our behaviour has the tendency to become self-destructive either inwardly towards ourselves, such as alcohol, lifestyle, stress, depression, or outwardly towards others and the territory we occupy. The goal would be a constructive and positive movement towards relating to ourselves, others, and the world, so that the presence of the claymore of the title is no longer an option. A claymore mine introduced for use by the US Army is an amiable, anti-personal device that, when detonated, shoots metal balls into the kill zone of an ambush. The Claymore Mine was named for the Claymore, which was a two-handed sword used in medieval Scotland. This book is not an academic or research text, nor is it a replacement for appropriate diagnosis and management. It's just a little book based on endless hours of sitting with men from the Australian military and the Rhodesian Bush War, from World War II, through Vietnam to Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a book based on my own personal insights from being a combat veteran of the Rhodesian Bush War to the many messes and losses I faced during my own post-war journey. It's based on my experiences of being witness to the veterans' deep pain, loss and grief and their depression, stress, anxiety, anger, and everyday struggles to adjust to the unpredictable complexities of civilian life. It's based on the universal and timeless experience and shared comradeship of veterans gathering with veterans, no matter whether they come from special force units or regular units. It's based on the stories of veterans, partners and children, as they have desperately tried to find ways to understand and bridge the traumatic silence so typical of many veterans, as well as to deal with the war that returned home the rage and reactivity, the alcohol and the flashbacks. It's based on the deep feelings of loss veterans have felt as they've tried to connect with others they once knew but still love. It's based on supporting veterans and their families to create a map and find a compass that will help them operate in the bewildering and unpredictable confusion of civilian life. Finally, this book is based not just on the trust and insights that have emerged between myself and these remarkable people, 
not just on my own deepening of my skills in treating trauma, <coughs> but also my personal journey of healing. As much as I have had an in, and as much as I have had an impact on those I have been privileged to speak with, they in turn have enriched, affected, and left me a wiser and better man, veteran father, friend, husband, and psychologist. I have kept my book short and simple. I have drawn on operational lessons, principles and military training and have linked these factors to create a map and resource that veterans can draw on when transitioning to civilian life. I have translated the brain and neuroscience to operational terms. Through this book, I hope you will become clearer about how to move from an ambush mode to what I call an OP, an observe, plan, think and organize mode. An OP is also an observation post where the terrain and those moving across it can be monitored without being visible. You will learn tools and insights to choose which way your claymore faces. You will find language to support you to communicate with your partner, friends, children and family. You will find help in identifying tools to learn to do your pull-through. Keep your personal barrel clean and avoid stoppages. I will also share resources on my website from a number of approaches that the veterans I've worked with have found effective, especially in those tight situations where an immediate cockwoken look is needed. For those of you that don't know what this expression means, it is an immediate action drill to assess and then clear a cartridge struck, stuck in the breech of a weapon. There is no rocket science in anything I've written. I've leave the academics for others. This is an on-the-ground, in territory, dusty, sweaty, practical, short and simple book. I do not suggest anything that I have not personally used and continue to use to this day. Take time as you move through my book to put it down once in a while and think about your commitment to your journey and to creating change. Think about some of the insights, understandings and strategies and then commit to trying one or two things that may make sense to you. Draw on the support of others around you. Remember that a good patrol is determined by the knowledge of the map you carry, your internal compass, your values and judgment, the resources you equip yourself with to manage and survive, and most important of all, the presence of others in your group. The rules remain the same. Teamwork, knowledge, and the willingness to take the first step. I wish you all well on this journey and hope that along the way you find the peace you deserve and the connections with others that are important to you in whatever territory you currently find yourself. My website and my book have a number of very practical tools that are freely available for you to try out. I personally continue to use these tools to this day and have seen the benefit they've had on those I've sat with in my practice. They are drawn from the work of a number of people and organizations. I wish to add that before using these tools, be sure to clear these tips with any professionals you are working with. I would really like to stress that you may be recently out of operations or 40 years may have passed since you were on active duty, but it is never too late to get help in order to change and to heal. I think I'll stop there. Um, I hope this is having some value to all of you and that it is having an impact on your life. Again, feel free to contact me and I will continue with part two as soon as life gives me a few spare minutes. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Hi, I'm Barry Zwarestein, author of Which Way Is Your Warrior Facing? an operational manual for current serving and veterans transitioning into civilian life. Today I'm going to begin on the chapter on operational neuroscience. One of the most valuable tools I use with veterans is in explaining how the brain and trauma work. Just as a map and compass and an awareness of the territory to be covered are critical to a successful patrol, so too is understanding the terrain of the brain. With this understanding, how you think, feel and react, will start to make more sense. The two operational areas I will focus on are the front and the back of the brain. To keep things simple, we can understand the front part as the smart brain and the back as the impulsive brain. 
The front has the ability to think and reason and to make sure that when you set up your claim or mine, it is facing outwards. It thinks, plans and strategizes. The back is quite likely to set up an ambush with a claymore either facing inwards towards you or destructively outward towards those you care for. This is the part of the brain that immediately responds when things go wrong. It is continuously in action and with high states of hypervigilance in what is known as being in contacts and using fire force. Um, just to define, a contact is the action of becoming engaged with the enemy, while fire force is the deployment of helicopters both to place troops on the ground in a contact and to engage from the air with weapons. Trauma results in significant overactivity in, in this part of the brain. The high levels of fear response activate symptoms of alertness, scanning and anticipation of an attack. Under normal situations, blood flows from the back of the brain to the front. As long as this flow is regular, we have the capacity to think about what we are experiencing and plan an appropriate response. So if we are in a restaurant in civilian life, we can understand that we are safe and that there is no need to scan and sit facing the door. But for vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and high levels of trauma, the brain is still at war, no matter how many years may have passed. The high levels of stress, depression, anxiety and trauma kick up the levels of arousal in the back of the brain. As a result, the blood flow to the front of the brain decreases, which in simple terms is the equivalent of being on a patrol with no radio, map or compass. We then retreat and function at high levels of alertness in order to protect ourselves and others around us. So with the back of your brain running its own show without the capacity to reason or think clearly, it's not surprising that we hit the dirt when a car backfires. We exhaustingly scan when we are in shopping centers. We always need to face the doorway and we react excessively and immediately and then have great difficulty recovering quickly. I remember once in training a soldier with an MAG had a runaway gun where the weapon continues to fire on its own volition. At that point, he was in such a high state of fear that there was no longer any blood flow to the front of his brain, resulting in him beginning to turn around while still holding the runaway MAG. Many veterans arrive home with their brains still on operation mode. And as a result, even though the war may be long over or recently concluded, they continue to operate at home as if they were still on operations. As the soldiers had done on operations, their partners and children now live in high states of alertness, fear and uncertainty at home because of the soldier's behavior. Their brains remaining fully operational leave the soldier's loved one feeling as if they were in the middle of a field of landmines scattered by their trauma and PTSD. Whereas in operations and contacts, we can react with aggression. These trained and wired in behaviors at home and in civilian life can have disastrous effects on those we love. As a result, too many veterans turn to alcohol as a way to release, escape and relax. But this is a form of R&R that has no positive outcome. We become hostage to our own trauma, driven deeper and deeper into despair as we unsuccessfully attempt to navigate our way through the unpredictabilities of civilian territory. As one vet put it, it was so much simpler in the military. I knew where I stood, I depended and trusted the men around me, and they in turn respected and trusted me. We were a family, a team, we stuck together. Rank defines, conducts, codes of conduct. In civilian life, there are no such systems. Everything's unpredictable. I can walk into a supermarket and someone will give me a hard time. I'll be driving my car and another driver will cut me off or fly into a rage at me. I don't have my friends, my team, my brothers to back me up. So to tie all this together, let's look at the back of the brain from an operational point of view. First, we're gonna start with the relay station or what I call the OP. This part of the brain collects information coming in from the external environment. It rapidly evaluates what needs to be attended to, be kept under observation or immediately respond to. It is the rational thinking, planning, observant part of ourselves. The more we are able to remain in the OP mode, which is what I define as observe, plan, think and organize, 
the more likely we will be able to accurately assess situations and effectively manage them. When we step out of OP mode, the outside world can be perceived as dangerous and a real threat. Other drivers, a cardboard box on the side of the road, or a chaotic shopping centre. This is the part of our brain that has perspective and can think, plan and coordinate. Without this part of our brain functioning properly, we lack perspective and as a result we cannot think or plan clearly. Without this perspective we run the risk of friendly fire, which in civilian terms equates to unnecessary and excessive reactivity to situations that at a realistic and rational level do not place us or those around us at risk. An example of this is a veteran who describes a method of placing weapons around the house. The family has been trained to observe arcs of fire and to triple check that all windows and doors are secured. At night, they will constantly wake up to listen and recheck any lapses in vigilance and safety protocols on the part of the family members can often be met with frustrated rage based on the anxieties and fears about the risk of attack. Our challenge is to begin to use this part of our brain and begin to learn to stand down the other parts of our brain in civilian life. By stand down, I do not mean that we switch off the parts of our brain that instinctively react should a car lose control and drive at us, should our young child fall in the pool, or should a snake rear up in front of us on a hike. By stand down, I mean that we begin to activate the thinking parts of our brain so that we no longer hear every backfire as a shot or view every object on the side of the road as a potential IED. The next part of the brain I call the trip flare. This is the brain's early warning system. It expects threat and danger to be around every corner. It is from this position that the claymore mine is triggered. The trip flare plays a significant role in anxiety it is that part of our brain that is always alerted to changes in our environment. It is that part of our brain that lies in ambush, constantly alert to unusual sounds and the potential for the enemy to walk into the killing zone. When the trip flare position is acute, blood flow to the relay station or OP part of our brain is significantly reduced. This then restricts our capacity to think, plan, assess and interpret. It can and does result in behaviours that can be destructive to ourselves and others. The consequence of a shutdown OP and activated trip flare state can then result in a contact as noted earlier. Never an effective choice in civilian life. Point three is the contact sequence. This is the part of our brain that gets us ready to react and initiates a response. It is that part of our brain that carries the HE and the FOS grenades, claymores, MAGs, mortars, and everything else. Remaining in contact mode results in casualties and civilian life. The impact of this level of arousal and reactivity on well-being at high levels can be very toxic and can increase the likelihood of self-destructive behaviors such as anxiety, stress, and alcohol abuse. So now that you're all operationally trained neuroscientists, we will begin to look at a few, and effect, few simple and effective ways for you to begin to create more blood flow to the front of your brain and slowly move from reactivity to reason, a far better type of R&R. The next part of this book will also allow you to identify what sections of your brain are operational. Knowing this can already create some space between the situation and you being able to respond in effective and respectful ways. Probably not a bad part for your partner to read so that when you identify being in an ambush state, your partner will understand you and can support you to make effective choices. In my next chapter, I talk about an introduction to 13 lessons to successfully operate in civilian territory. You know, I missed a certain edge after leaving the military. I began to run and with time, I was eventually running marathons and ultra marathons. I felt at peace when I ran, and I still do, and pushing through the wall left me feeling alive, until one day when someone asked me, what are you running away from? That was a bit of an arch factor. This made me reflect on my running, and from that experience I also pulled together a number of running-related life lessons that eventually formed the 13 lessons following. Lesson one is, giving up is never an option. 
No matter how difficult the journey may feel at times, it is important to remember that there is a beginning and an ending to everything. Giving up is never an option. If you need to sit down, then do so. But then get up, dust yourself off and keep moving. Never give up. Instead, stop at times to take a breath and regroup. Pace yourself. Going backwards is not an option. Self-discipline and repetition of strategies and tools will keep you in the driver's seat. You know, I'd spent um, several difficult months training for my first two ultramarathons. My first 64-kilometer race went well and it felt effortless and I completed the race in an excellent time. I then began the serious training for the uphill 87.5-kilometer Comrades Marathon in South Africa, which was, one, I, th- I believe, the world's first ultramarathon. The training was exhausting and demanding. My body was tired for ongoing periods and it was far from an enjoyable experience. I wanted to give up numerous times. If I had been on my own, I may very well have found a reason to quit, but I had committed to a friend or mentor, a mentor who refused to allow me to opt out and continually stressed that our agreement was binding and that giving up was not going to be an option he would support. I must admit that I disliked him at times, but being accountable to someone from having regular check-ins was the main reason I got to the starting line. Even today, when working with veterans, I will suggest that they text me daily to tell me what they have achieved. We form a partnership towards a healing and for maintaining their discipline and focus. I eventually got to the starting line, and all I could see was 87 kilometers of slow-rising hills disappearing into the distance. My confidence based on my previous race began to feel like uncertainty. But as everyone does and should do in committing to a challenge, we all drew on one another for encouragement. So in your own journey, try to find friends who can encourage and support you as you begin to change. Find friends who won't judge you, but when necessary will give you a kick in the butt and refuse to allow you to give up. At around the 67-kilometer mark of the ultra, my knee started to act up. Every step was beyond painful. At that point, I still had 20 kilometers to go and my body felt as if it was falling apart. The encouragement and support of others and the first aid stations helped, but I was either going to have to find a way to step back from the pain or give in to it. I remember reminding myself about my commitment that I had bought the badge, the cap and everything else, and that not crossing the line was never going to be an option. I would crawl if I had to. The combination of support from others, positive self-talk, my commitment to my goal and moving with the pain got me over the line. It wasn't a great time, but it was my best race and that I rose above my perception of personal limitation. So on your own journey, I suggest you do the following. First, find someone to be responsible to. Then find friends who will listen to and encourage you. Following that, strengthen your will through discipline and effort then fully commit to your right to heal and finally acknowledge that giving up will never be an option. Remember that the right attitude plus appropriate support and training will get you across the finishing line. Lesson two is take small steps and just begin somewhere. No matter how immobilized you feel, it's all about your willingness to take the first step to change, no matter how small. Each step forward will bring you closer to change. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. Just begin somewhere. Dave, like many of the veterans I'd worked with, had experienced many setbacks in his life. He defined these as personal failures and as a result, tended to anticipate not succeeding. Before even beginning the change process, he was defeated. His mindset was working against him. He had tried to reduce his drinking, but had then gone on a binge. He had tried to improve his fitness, but then become discouraged and gave up. It all felt too difficult and overwhelming for him. It was easy to just allow his life and the world to collapse inwards. Dave started to make progress when he began with small steps, going out every day to check the mail, taking a short walk around the block and keeping his apartment clean. By creating order in his life in small, achievable ways, Dave began to feel that he was back in the driver's seat and feeling more in control of his life. He documented these bits of progress every day and shared them with me and his close supportive friends. Slowly, he dug himself out of the hole he'd been in. 
For those of you who are listening, wherever you are in life as you are reading or listening to this, begin somewhere. It doesn't matter whether you run, walk or crawl. What are you willing to do in your living space? What strategies and tools from my book, my website or your own counselling are you prepared to use daily? Make a call to your veteran organisation or a check-in with your doctor. Each small step will progress you forward. It's like ascending an OP. The more you move forward, the higher you get, the greater and clearer your vision and understanding of the territory you are in will be. Set small, achievable goals and reward yourself in ways that are constructive. Learning to strip and assemble your weapon in any condition, even blindfolded, took hours of practice and perseverance. Learning to change your life is no different. One thing at a time. So get up, dust yourself off and start again. Lesson three is better to choose change than it choose you. You know, change takes effort. It takes discipline and a commitment and at sometimes a fair bit of sweat. It's not simply given to us on a plate. You need to hunt change, fight for change and adjust and adapt when required. The fact that you are listening to this would suggest that a part of you wants to change and that you are looking for ways, insights and support in this process. Recognize this and remember it. This book may or may not support you, but that you were called to give it a go says something. This book, what I have written, and I guess even the relationship between you and me as you are listening to me, is the beginning. I always maintain that it is better to hunt change than to have change hunt you. Moving forward is not always going to be easy. Parts of you may jump up and try to ambush you. So stay alert, maintaining a situational awareness around these parts of yourself. You may have to fight against these parts at times. You may need to adjust your goals as needed and adapt to changing territory. If you want to remain where you are, then this book may have little or no impact on you. Without you having the will to change, change will simply not happen. Lesson four, I call HE, which in American uh, in military terms is high explosives, Rat Pack Claymore, and it's about choosing your tools. Identify what tools you need to help you on your way, whether it's good nutrition, so the Rat Pack for you that like um, those kind of foods, or learning healthy ways to manage your stress, depression, and anxiety. You know, I'd read lots of books on running marathons and ultra marathons. I had read and created training schedules and eating plans. I had bought the right gear and it felt good. But what I had not yet committed to was action, getting my feet in the territory and accumulating kilometers, building my endurance, getting dirty and dusty, and developing a good mindset and ability to hit and move through the wall. So it's good to identify the tools you need. You should become more knowledgeable and insightful through reading this book. But knowledge is never a substitute for committed and disciplined action. This book may not be enough for you to identify the tools you need. If so, then get the support you need to help you and get you on your way. Change will not wait for you, nor will it turn back and come towards you. Try out some of the tools in my book. Don't give up on them right away. Change does not happen overnight and neither do miracles. It takes time. Be prepared to keep doing what you have chosen to do and keep going through the territory where things appear to remain the same. Lesson five is, if you can walk, don't expect others to carry you. You know, others may run with you and encourage you, but at the end of the day, you alone are responsible for putting one foot in front of the other. Bill's friends and his wife were really excited and supportive of his desire to create change in his life and with those who were in it. He began well, but could not sustain the challenges of change. He had a supportive network. They encouraged him to see someone and get help. They recognized and affirmed the small steps he was taking. But in the, bill, in the end, Bill kept choosing to sit on the side of the road. Gradually, others became frustrated by his immobility and refusal, not only to do something small, but also to ask for appropriate help. His friends started to step away and his wife began to experience a sense of hopelessness that then created a distance between herself and Bill. Bill began to feel abandoned by everyone. He felt like a casualty. The bottom line is that a time clock can be ticking away in the background. Others will give you 100%, but 
but that will change over time if you do not meet these people and walk towards him. Nobody can or will carry you over the finishing line. They will walk beside you, but you need to be willing to walk with them. I've worked with veterans whose first step was to acknowledge their inability to move and to admit themselves into a program or a clinic or speak to a doctor, psychologist, psychiatrist, veteran organization or a 24-hour crisis line. There is always something you can do. Lesson six is life can be an obstacle course, as I'm sure many of you have realized. On the way to healing, you may encounter hills and obstacles. Stay focused on the journey, on the small steps, and remember that you were trained to go well beyond your comfort zone. The wiring is still there to draw on. Who you were as a warrior remains who you still are. So respect yourself, because life and others are not going to give this to you at times. Remember that you are never too old or wounded to deal with an obstacle course that life may bring to you. David being a special force operator, as a result of an injury, he had been rapidly sidelined to a desk job. The trauma he experienced was not as a result of his operational experience, but more a result of how he felt discarded and abandoned by his tribe. He lost his connection with his brothers and he struggled to redefine who he was. His was in many ways a moral, not an operational injury. He felt betrayed by his family, the military family. This went against everything he believed and stood for. It was only a matter of time before he was medically discharged and found himself completely lost and unprepared for civilian territory. He was haunted by a sense of failure and aloneness. From being able to manage complex operational demands and diverse thinking and high-risk multitasking, typical of SF operators, he was now accepting manual labor jobs. Over the years, I have always remained deeply concerned and frustrated about how so many competent warriors are treated, dealt with and managed. That the suicide rate is so high is not surprising. In no way do I underplay the immense challenges of these adjustments. What I have learned is that they cannot be done on your own. Even reading or listening to this book is insufficient. Through appropriate support, you will be more able to reclaim who you were, respect and value those parts of yourself, manage the transition challenges you experience, and in time find a way for your warrior to coexist with your civilian. It can be a very daunting obstacle course, whether you're currently transitioning or have just become aware 40 years later of the impact of that time of your life on the present. All the veterans I have sat with, no matter how traumatized they have been by their journeys, have embodied qualities that I deeply value, care for and respect. I believe that we need more men and women with these values in civilian life. Others can learn from you. You've been to places that the majority of people cannot get close to understanding. You carry the wisdom, the strength and the endurance of the warrior. Part of your healing will be to reclaim who you were and then allow that part of you to coexist wherever you may now be in your life. Lesson seven is learn to tolerate discomfort. As you make changes, don't always stay within your safety zone. Push yourself to extend your limits. Remember that the changes you want for yourself lie beyond your field of comfort. Focus your will and determination on your ability to sustain discomfort. In running, I learned that the most powerful place was at the edge of my perceived limits, at the wall. It was not where I was breathing easily and enjoying the race. It was where I had to dig deep and rise above the self-limiting thoughts and feelings. It was at this point where I began to understand that no matter what the territory was like, I could control my attitude and draw on resources and training to move through it and not just collapse. You will most likely experience moments when you don't simply progress evenly into change, but rather stretch into change. This is no different from your early experience of training, selection and operating. You may be called to move out of your comfort zone with your counsellor as you process feelings and memories, getting fit, reducing your alcohol intake, changing behaviours, dealing with relationships, navigating your way into and through civilian life, and dealing with your thoughts, feelings and behaviours. These can all be uncomfortable and challenging. Think about your willingness and personal commitment to do whatever it takes to create change within yourself and your life. The feelings, thoughts, memories, frustrations and challenges 
you may currently be facing will not kill you. Remember that the safety of your comfort zone can become your contact zone and that remaining where you are may not, may not serve constructive movement forward. If you're listening to this now, then a part of you is already willing to extend into new territory. It's no different from going to the gym to, for the first time. The aches and pains are a part of the journey as your muscles creak and groan. You set graduated targets to allow your body to strengthen and become more, more flexible. Life and relationships are no different. Lesson eight is commit to the terrain. The more you fully engage in your commitment to change, the more emotionally and psychologically fit you will be and be able to sustain the rigors of the journey. When I asked George what had brought him to counselling, he noted that his wife had had enough of his bad moods and outbursts and had threatened to leave if he did not get help. I asked George how personally committed he felt to creating change and also whether he felt he needed to change. George acknowledged feeling uncertain. He said that he'd had no problems in his relationship with other veterans and that he felt it was up to his wife to learn how to understand veterans and to be more accepting of his difficulties. He was angry about being told what to do, being told that he was a problem, and he was angry that he always caved in to his wife's demands. In time, it became clear to both of us that George's commitment to dealing with his relationship challenges, whether it was in individual or couple counselling, was very ambivalent. He made very little progress and terminated after a few sessions. Take time now and think about why you are listening to this book. What is happening in your life that is challenging you? Is your need to enter the terrain of change based on others' expectations? Or is it driven by your personal commitment to yourself? Maybe a little of both. The greater the strength of your commitment, the more successful you will be at navigating your way through the territory. This and other books will offer you tools and training to draw on that you will need to use to sustain your commitment. Lesson 9. Keep moving no matter what. Initially, the resources you carry to support you on your journey may feel overwhelming. As you strengthen and as you start to use them, however, the load will become lighter. At times, you may find yourself sitting down by the side of the road, miserable, frustrated and angry. You may be hitting a wall at every turn in the road. By keep moving, I mean have your moment, but then get up, dust yourself off and keep going. Your pack may be heavy with all the things you are carrying from your life. If the weight feels overwhelming, then control your pace and take breaks. You no longer need to push yourself to the breaking point. Small steps will get you across the line. The further you travel, the more competent you will feel and the faster you will progress. If you are having a rough day as you are listening to this and just want to go AWOL, then take a few minutes and use some of the tools that you will find on our website. They will help you find a clearer, calmer place in your body. Think about one thing you may be willing to do today, one person you would be willing to call and one task that you may be willing to complete. Try to get out the front door, breathe and go for a short walk. Just please keep moving. Lesson 10. Opie mode can save your skin. At times you may need to behave as if you're on an observation post where you simply keep your mouth shut and your head down. Listen, observe, monitor and learn. Shoot your mouth off and the double tap you next here may be directed straight at you. Remaining observant, identifying your arcs of fire and or behavior and keeping situationally alert can keep you safe. Your relationship with others and yourself depend on this. Phil, a Vietnam veteran, noted that I cannot tolerate fools. If they're not doing things the way I think they should or they're going about it too slowly, I end up getting frustrated, angry and reactive. I know that all of this is doing is creating tension and stress for me with my kids, my wife, my friends and co-workers. I can see myself shooting my mouth off, but I just can't stop myself. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Having a runaway mouth will never, be a con will never be constructive. You may have already listened or should have listened to the chapter on operational neuroscience. So when you are triggered, when you're sorry, when you are triggered and the back of your brain, which is the emotional center, will kick up with stress, anger, irritation and everything else. 
Think about the fact that as a result of being kicked up, the blood flow to the front of your brain, which if you remember is the thinking, planning and organizing part, is reduced. The more reduced the blood flow, the less likely you will be to think clearly. You will find yourself driven and almost trapped by the emotion. A part of yourself may even know that this is not going to work, but you find you can do nothing to change. You are now just firing on automatic like a runaway gun. When you are in this position, having someone tell you to calm down is not going to work. First, you need to bring down the back of your brain to allow you to get into OP mode. At this point, you need body-based tools such as breathing, tapping, which I talk about in my website. This is a technique where you tap on specific points on the body, which then provides relief from anxiety and stress. It's used extensively in the USA with veterans. Try drinking cold water and other tools that I've detailed in my website. If you need to, go put yourself under a cold shower. This should certainly do the trick and get you out of runaway mode. You'll need to learn to create a stopgap between the emotion and the behavior to allow your body to slow down and for blood to get to the front of your brain. It may be helpful to explain to others that sometimes you may need to take time out to calm down and then return. Lesson 11. Blame is dead weight. Every day is a gift, whether you are with your military friends or with family and other friends. Assess whether you are taking anyone for granted or whether you are taking things personally and reacting. Treating others as the enemy and blaming them is certainly not going to keep you alive. People around you may be giving you a hard time. Civilian life may be pushing your buttons. Your boss may be in your face. This is absolutely not easy. But the minute you move into victim and blame mode, you begin to dig a hole that can be challenging to climb out of. Acknowledging and respecting that parts of your life may not be easy is fair enough. But feeling persecuted by everything and everyone will load your pack with enough weight to mobilize you. If you can identify those parts of yourself that blame others and feel victimized in your current situation, then the next step is to be willing to get support to allow you to reduce this destructive load. Lesson 12 is pull-through or stoppage. Of critical importance is your regular pull-through. Keep your barrel clean. Remember that life challenges and whatever else you carry will leave residues. If you neglect to pull through, then you will eventually get a stoppage. This concept or principle is probably one of the most effective lessons that I use with veterans and those who are currently serving. It's the one thing that always makes sense to the people I sit with. Whether you are a veteran or a civilian, a husband or wife or anything else, life affects us in either positive or challenging ways. Life, our histories and aging will all leave a residue. If we ignore the residue, if we fail to regularly do a pull-through as well as strip, clean and oil all moving parts, then a stoppage will eventually occur. The stoppage may be a burst of anger, a bout of depression, a panic attack, or overwhelming and high levels of stress. Whatever it is, the common denominator that will, that will be does not work constructively for you. Good nutrition, sleep, exercise, lifestyle balance and getting appropriate support and tools to use daily will all support you in keeping your barrel clean. As a veteran, you've learned the importance of cleaning your weapon regularly. It is just as important to learn to keep the many parts of yourself clean and well-oiled. On my website, you will find a number of pull-through tools that I have used with veterans over the years and that they have found effective. These are tools that I personally use on a daily basis. I encourage you to have a look at these and to discuss them with the professionals who are working with you. If they support you in using them, then give the tools a try and give them time to have an impact on you. An endless number of tools are available out there. Look around and research them. My choices need not be your choices. But at the end of the day, make a choice and start putting into practice your own daily pull-through. Remember that a pull-through consists of becoming informed as well as taking focused, rehearsed and disciplined action. And finally, lesson 13 is it's time for a good brew. So here, take time on the way to enjoy the sights. It's not all hard work and pay attention to the positives in your life 
and enjoy the journey. Change and transformation without a good laugh every now and then can leave you discouraged. This is a simple lesson and very little more needs to be said about it. Other than this, take time for a good brew. Whether it's a beer, non-alcoholic, or herbal tea or a strong cup of coffee enjoyed with friends, and enjoy the ration pack special dog biscuits. So, a brief summary. You should now have a greater understanding of the following. What mindset will support you in moving forward? The importance of not just thinking change, but implementing change. How your brain works regarding the impact of operations and in transitioning into civilian life. And 13 lessons that you can use that will support you in, another, in a number of ways. These bits of advice should support you in moving forward through the territory of your brain and in your personal life, whether you are still in the military, you are in process of transitioning into civilian life, or you made the transition a while ago. Having seen many spouses and children of veterans, I have no doubt that the relationship and civilian territory can be more bewildering, unpredictable and uncharted than any military territory. Partners I have spoken with over the years have continually noted how the veterans they love bring the war back home. They describe the reactivity, moodiness, need for control, hypervigilance, isolation, ease of being triggered, difficulties navigating through intimacy and challenges in communication. They note that the veterans seem to be wired for the fight or flight instinct. They struggle with the deep bonds they have with their fellow veterans, which often feel more intimate than those between themselves and their partners. I'm not a relationship expert, nor do I work with couples. My book is therefore not an in-depth exploration of couple work, but many of the lessons, the constructive ones that fit into civilian, ter civilian terrain, learned in the military and on operations can also be applied to your relationship. I once worked with a veteran who was aware of his reactivity to his wife. In situations of disagreement or whenever he felt he was being criticised, he would become dismissive, aggressive or just walk away. I asked him how he, be, how he behaved when patrolling through a village where the women of the village had been verbally and physically aggressive towards him. He noted that he'd paid no attention to them and had maintained a controlled and neutral position. I then asked him how it was that when his wife wanted to communicate her frustrations and feelings towards him, he reacted as if she were the enemy and were armed. I reminded him that in these situations, he could demonstrate self-control. Then with appropriate support, he could again learn to achieve more constructive ways of communicating. Perhaps one thing I would like to stress is that the brain at war does not differentiate territories. It will behave in civilian life the same way it does in military life. But you have all learned the discipline of self-control. If the challenges of what you've been through at war have had an impact on the positive qualities of being a warrior, then please see someone and get help. You are not short of courage. Draw on the resources in my book and on my website, as well as your friends and helping professionals and veteran organisations in your own country. You owe it to yourself, as well as to those who love and care for you. Thank you for listening to this. I will continue again within the next few days. And again, I hope that this supports you on your journey. Feel free to contact me and give any feedback. Thank you. Take care and have a good day.